Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. We are really excited for you to hear from our guests today as we discuss a very important topic. Within our neurodiverse community, we've got our loved ones that kind of think differently and kind of outside the typical bell curve. So they're kind of a minority within our population. And then within that minority, we have a subset minority, and that is our female, our neurodiverse females. And they often are being misdiagnosed or not getting diagnosed um, early on. It's longer to, to catch a diagnosis. And a lot of the studies and work that's been done has been primarily on neurodiverse males. And so our females are kind of getting lost in this and they present a little bit differently and they have a little bit different needs. And so we're really excited to have Caitlin Galt um, on our show today. She is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and she works for a Spiro Wilderness program up in Sandy, Utah. And we love working with Caitlin. She really understands this population. She specializes in autism spectrum disorder, nonverbal learning disorder, family systems, anxiety, identity issues, mood disorders, trauma, addictive behaviors, and ADHD. And I know for Caitlin, this is a, a topic near and dear to her heart, like addressing the needs of our females. So Caitlin, welcome to our show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Caitlin, how long have you been working with uh, neurodiverse population, young adults, teens? Uh, professionally working with them for the 12 years now. Um, but before that, I did a lot of mentoring. And um, I also grew up in a family with a brother who is neurodiverse. So lived with it. Uh, we find that often. Those who yeah. are passionate about this topic usually have a personal connection for us. I don't know if you understood, knew before that our children, we have two boys who are neurodiverse and that's why we started Techie for Life anyway, mm-hmm. our son. Um, and I learned more as a father than I ever did as a therapist, mm-hmm. just being around it. So, oh, yeah. well, that's great. I love that about you. And, and I don't know if you know, you have an amazing reputation in our community, the programs, and the schools and the specialized care uh, in the private sector, everyone knows Caitlin Galt. So we're happy Thank to have you. Good to hear. Here with us. Thank yes. you. So are there differences? Like what, what, what differences are you seeing when, like in the numbers of male versus female on the spectrum? Mm-hmm. And that also in like nonverbal learning disorder, ADHD, some of the other diagnoses that fall under the neurodiverse umbrella. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Well, I guess to start, there for every four and a half uh, males that are diagnosed on the spectrum, one female is diagnosed on the spectrum. And you may have heard those statistics, but a big piece of that is that they're misdiagnosed and their their autism presentation can look much different than a male autism presentation. And sometimes it can look similar, but oftentimes they're diagnosed with more of a a personality disorder or um, anxiety or uh, something along those lines as opposed to 
autism. So we're seeing that a lot and have for many years. So when they finally get an appropriate assessment that is looking at the neurodiverse issues, then we are seeing that autism piece come out, especially with really solid uh, developmental history coming into play. So just from our experience, anecdotally, it seems like um, boys tend to act out more. And I don't know if that's the testosterone piece, but their behaviors, their outward behaviors really show up quickly and, and cause issues more. So you're more likely to look for issues or look for a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what you think is going on with the misdiagnoses and the presentation or why is there even a difference? Yeah. So, well, when a boy acts out, oftentimes it's oppositional or they're defiant, right? There's a behavioral issue. And when girl acts out, oftentimes it's seen as an emotional issue, right? And so they're looked at differently, I think, in our society, unfortunately. And I think that's where we miss pieces, right? We're looking at the symptoms and not necessarily what's underlying those symptoms. So it's kind of like how how we perceive their acting out. Is their acting out behaviors tend to be the same, but we view them differently? Oh, yeah. she's just being emotional while he's just being a boy kind of a yep. thing? <laughs> yeah, oftentimes, unfortunately. And yeah, that's where a lot of misses and blind spots are. So, and I think that professionals in a setting where you know, they're seeing a client once a week or once every couple of weeks, it's harder to connect those dots right? And to see the um, patterns of behavior and maybe where the behavior is coming from. And so with more of a microscope on some of these clients, it can be helpful to tweeze out some of the things that might look like a different diagnosis when really the underlying issue is something that's more of a um, nonverbal learning disorder or autism spectrum disorder. Can you speak um, more to um, what you are looking for in a female, like what are some of those like red flags that that there's probably something more going on here than just a girl being emotional? Because I know there's going to be moms out there and dads out there that are like, I feel like my daughter's a little different. There's something going on. Like what, yeah. what, what are some of those things that you're on the lookout for? Uh, so oftentimes we see that you know, sometimes they might have one or two close friends and, you know, and in males, sometimes there might be more isolation or more online friends. And in, in females, we see that, yes, there can be some online friends as well because they have a hard time navigating those relationships in person. Um, we also see that they'll mimic a lot of their peers' behavior. So if they see something that a peer is doing and they think that that will help them uh, progress socially, then they might do something similar, whether it's maladaptive or not. Um, They might try to mirror that behavior. Um, So with the females that we see, oftentimes that's, that's a big one. And they tend to almost take it to the extreme. So it's not, it's not mirroring or mimicking in a subtle way. It's mirroring and mimicking in a way that is a bit above and beyond, right? What you would typically see other peers doing. Cause it is very natural for people to mirror their peers, right? You learn from peers as you're developing and growing up. So that's typical. Uh, but when it becomes something that's more concerning behavior, um, let's say your know, sexuality is oftentimes a big one or acting out sexually or not understanding boundaries sexually. And that's, a lot of what they see happening with their peers and then 
that's how they find connection at times. So we do see a lot of female clientele that are um, more, I would say, engaged in the sexual exploration of things when they might not have the emotional or behavioral capacity or maturity to navigate that type of environment or relationship yet. So there's no internal identity. They're just really trying to find an identity by copying everyone around them and not very much comes from within. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And I, I think what I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that is a big fear for parents too, is their daughter getting into trouble in those mm-hmm. areas and what's going on and why are they being highly influenceable by yes. the environment. Yeah. That's pretty common yeah. for all autism yeah. or diverse, but and then they come across for females, they end up looking like emerging borderline personality. Yes. Which uh, maybe you can explain a little bit a bit about that and how borderline is different than than autism, but they might look similar. Yeah. So I mean the the big piece is you know, there are unstable or intense relationships and the intensity of relationships. Yes, that can happen at times with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis and that can happen in autism as well. Right. so it's, it can get a little messy in sorting those things out, but it's coming from a different angle with the intensity that comes along in a relationship dynamic with um, someone who is on the autism spectrum because you know, they're looking for that connection and they just don't quite have the sophistication to know where the boundary is, to know when they're overstepping. They aren't intentionally overstepping a boundary. They're misstepping, right? So and it's, it's not because they want to, they really want that connection. They're not trying to push the other person away, sort of that, um, I hate you, don't leave me relationship dynamic. Right. But instead, they're wondering why that other person is being pushed away through their behaviors, but they don't see that their behaviors or their attachment to the relationship is maybe more extreme than their peer. But it can look like hot, cold in and out because they're not sure Mm -hmm. what they're doing. Whereas with someone who's emerging borderline or borderline personality disorder issues, they're like, I really have all kinds of attachment issues. I, I live in a lot of fear about rejection and. I think mm-hmm. autists, they want to be acceptable, but it's not the same amount of deep trauma necessarily that gets them there. Right. And um, it kind yeah. of reminds me of, of boys. There's been a lot of misdiagnoses with ADHD first and then later autism, but also schizophrenia. Yes. Boys have yes. this imaginative reality where people think, oh, they're schizophrenic. And so they look similar, mm-hmm. but the, the motive where it comes from or the, the source where it comes from is totally different. And it's autism. Um, right. Not the other core issues. So getting to the core issues sounds like it's really important. It's very for- important. Yeah. And that's why so much of you having someone that you're working with sort of, again, under that microscope to really dissect what's going on and seeing them interact socially. So it's not just in the school environment or in the home environment, because those environments can look very different. Um, you know, the, the presentation come out can come out very differently. So I think it's it's important to have a skilled set of eyes on the client that you're you know, curious about in terms of an appropriate diagnosis to make sure that we're we're really assessing and diagnosing what's actually going on underneath the surface. Because the presentation and maybe moodiness that we might see sometimes in females as well is not necessarily always a mood disorder, right? It could be a spectrum disorder. It almost seems like one of the small variances too with sexuality with um females on the spectrum are they approach sexuality itself a little more robotic 
and like a task to go through. And I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. what you've seen as well, but that's a little bit different than someone who's borderline as well. Yeah. How do I get accepted? Oh, I, I, I have sex and it's more like a, Mm -hmm. this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. Yes. This is what other people are doing. So I'm going to do this as well. And then people will like me, right. They'll get some sort of social uh, acceptance or engagement or status. I'll, I'll be normal. I'll feel normal. Because mm-hmm. that's what everyone's doing, I guess. Well, it yeah. seems like they go that way or they go the other way where they're afraid of it. Yes. Yeah. Don't even go there. Like they're and it's more of an asexual. Like asexual. I don't want anything to do with yeah. yeah. And they're they're the extremes. Yeah. What else do you look for as a parent for someone that you think might be autistic? Maybe some of the developmental things, some are mm-hmm. some are higher, some are lower in their developmental differences. What are some of those things? Yeah. So I would say, um, uh, you know, the, the big things in terms of relational issues, right? Are they navigating their social world, their relational world in a way that they're interpreting accurately, like from a parent's perspective, when something happens, you know, are they victimizing their experience, right? I, this person took advantage of me. Sometimes that can happen with uh, females on the spectrum that they can fall into more of that victim role, either knowingly or unknowingly, right? And so as parents, how do you see their social world forming or falling apart? Are they engaging? And what is it that's important to them? I think is also really, really uh, notable, you know, to be able to identify, is it the relationship, having connections, having friendships, or is it, this is what I'm supposed to be doing as a female in this society? And I I, I do think that we can have a whole nother presentation on social media and the influences of that. But I do think, especially for our young women, that piece is really um, difficult to navigate right? Because they, they don't have the sophistication, oftentimes the social sophistication to understand that what they're seeing isn't necessarily what's happening, right? That's not what's happening behind the scenes. And so they look at that and they go, oh, that's what I can do. Or they might reject that, like you were saying, Debbie, and, and go the complete opposite way. And I don't want to be anything like that. So I'm going to reject all social norms of feminism, right? And I'm going to go the opposite direction, so again, we see the extremes oftentimes. Well, and as you're talking, I was thinking about how I think they, the females often really just take things at face value and they don't mm-hmm. understand maybe the intentions or meaning behind things. They're not catching yeah, the nuance. They're just like, this is what you're saying and doing <laughs> and taking it at face value and they're missing yes. the complexity of what's actually happening or going on. Or, yeah. And that we really see that becoming a struggle, especially once the female adolescents move into high school, right? When things become a lot more complex, even starting in middle school at times as well, when those dynamics are not as much face value, like you said, right? There are a lot more hidden uh, subtleties, nuances to the presentation of their peers, right? And so you might see an increase in, you know, a low impulse control, like you might see that coming out more, their inability to control their impulses. You might see that they're more uh, emotionally sensitive, right? Dysregulating more frequently during those ages, um, you know, adolescent years or moving in 
to adulthood um, when they're going to be asked to do a lot more, but in a less structured environment without the scaffolding of school. Right. Oftentimes that can help a lot of these, these uh, adolescents and young adults sort of keep things together a bit more, <laughs> you know, the scaffolding of school. And really for all the different diagnoses under neurodiverse, like ADHD and some of the mm-hmm. other ones, you're going to see that coming out more as they hit the middle school, high school. When you described that girls can be victims because they're not quite aware of what's going on. And I was just thinking of how many boys we've worked with who have legal issues because they were unaware that they were forcing and becoming stalkers to girls because they weren't reading the cues and they didn't see the invisible boundary that's there. Right. And and you ever see the girl being that way, um, being overly aggressive sexually or getting in trouble maybe being the victimizer, because that, that does happen with, with boys quite, quite often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it, it's unfortunate. And I think the great thing is there's so much more awareness around spectrum disorders now than there was even a decade ago, um, two decades, decades ago, definitely. So there's more support within schooling oftentimes, um, and community mental health services, there's more support as well, more of an understanding of what um, these, these young people need in order to create the scaffolding outside of the schooling environment or even in the schooling environment to be able to move through the world, uh, the social world, the academic world, the job world, right? And that's the hope is that we can get these young people to a place of being able to sustain employment, sustain relationships, you know, have something that's fulfilling to them that they feel good about themselves and feel safe in the world around them. So there's a lot more support for them out there than there's ever been and more understanding. One of the things we've come to, to believe or practice is that our students need a safe place where they can just be themselves, where they don't have to compare themselves to their peers constantly because that's exhausting Mm -hmm. and overwhelming, but a a place to belong to a tribe, but then the ability to go out and be a part of the the quote unquote typical world um, where there is comparison fatigue going on constantly in there. They're always having to be hyper aware of, am I interacting right? Am I okay? Am I doing things right? And I, the first time I heard you present, um, on something called masking was a couple of years ago and how destructive masking was, especially for females. And I, I'd love to explain what that is a little bit. What does that look like? Uh, why is it so damaging? Um, and how do we, how do we help it? Yes. The social masking that's very typical in females. Um, and we see it a lot more than in males, uh, on the autism spectrum. And so, uh, you know, social masking is a, is a way to, Uh, meet the social norm expectations. And so uh, female clients on the spectrum might make more eye contact consistently. Um, They might respond more consistently to facial cues, um, which does allow that mimicking that we were, uh, we were talking about before, right? The, the peer mimicking. And um, you know, there are oftentimes sort of pre-planned prompts and questions for conversations that they pick up on that they can access. And so they can look more uh, socially normative, right? So, and that's that's one thing that often 
leads to us sort of mainstreaming, and I'm using air quotes there, um, mainstreaming our female uh, clientele or students that we work with because they do look uh, more well-presenting in their presentation. So that social masking is a very well-developed skill that many um, young people on the spectrum, young females on the spectrum develop over time. And again, there's also the other extreme where some people don't, uh, they don't develop that skill. So they might go the other way as we discussed. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a horror movie called Mimic. Oh, <laughs> so, I haven't seen that. <laughs> what's, the, what's the harm in masking or, or pretending to be typical so that they can fit in? Why is that yes. so the challenge with that is it catches up to them, right? That they can do that for some time, but they don't necessarily understand why they're doing that or maybe some of the misses that they have in those interactions. So they might mask to a point where, you know, the relationship uh, dynamic or maybe a work environment becomes more complex and they can't quite keep up with the masking. So it ends up becoming more, of a problem that they're having to figure out how to solve and they might not have those solution focused skills. They, they may, you know, there, I think there are many women on the spectrum that are undiagnosed or have been diagnosed, of course, as we mentioned with more of a personality disorder or a mood disorder. And so um, they've been able to make it through for quite some time, which is why we often see a late diagnosis in um, the female presentation of autism. Right. So they, and how we all learn developmentally is we see what we want it to look like. We see what others are doing and and then we practice it and then it becomes ours and we start to own it. Mm-hmm. But then with, with autists, there becomes a, there comes a gap and the older they get, the more is expected of sophisticated socializing and, and it, they, they never catch up and they never end up owning it. They're just playing a part and a role. And that's right. going to be exhausting. Well, in that generalizing of those social norms or that masking, being able to translate that into many other environments becomes more complex as life becomes more complex, right? So, so it's harder to keep up with that presentation. So, yeah, of the, being natural, they're playing a part, and then they're trying to apply parts in different areas, and it's it's like trying to juggle twenty balls instead of uh, it is just who we are. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it, the ball juggling reference. That's one that I use oftentimes when I'm talking to parents. And what we see a lot, especially with um, females on the spectrum is that when they're juggling, let's say they have five balls going in the air. When one drops, they all drop, right? Everything crumbles and it's hard for them to pick the pieces back up and keep going. Right. And that happens for a lot of us, but for for many of us, we can keep, you know, the self-care ball going. We can keep that up in the air and have that flow and we can take care of ourselves. And for a lot of these um, clients on the spectrum, it's much harder to keep even the more simple balls going in the air while we're trying to juggle life. So. And I think this is really helpful to understand your daughter does well in one area and then Mm -hmm. they go into a different setting or a different social circumstance. And then all of a sudden they're like not able to keep up with it. You're like, what is going on? Why are they not? They're so smart or, you know, they were able to do this before. Yeah. And that can be confusing because they can have a lot of, um, a lot of motivation for academics or a lot of motivation for, let's say a sport or something that is pretty concrete, easy for them to understand. And then 
when they translate that to another environment or any of the skills they're using, again, it's that generalizing piece, right? It's hard to shift from one thing to another. And, you know, if we're learning something, you know, those, those of us who are uh, more neurotypical, when we're learning something in one environment, you know, someone who's more neurodiverse might not be able to learn that in one environment and then translate it to the other environment. Whereas for us, you know, we're able to do that pretty easily. Like, oh, I learned that when I was at summer camp, or I learned that when I was in, you know, this class, I can apply it to this, this other situation at work, right? We can do that more easily. It's more accessible for us. So we watched, uh, I watched a, a young girl on one of my soccer teams that I coached and she was an amazing team captain mm-hmm. at age six and seven and eight. Wow. She showed up. She was aggressive. She did what she was told. She was coachable. She was and an amazing example to the other girls who were off mm-hmm. catching butterflies or <laughs> trying to make sure that their shoes were tied right. And yeah. so, but by the time she turned 12 or 13, what she needed to be to be the team captain was totally different. And mm-hmm. it required understanding and some nuance and, and some sophistication and how to motivate others in relationship. And mm-hmm. it really crushed her. It's a lot more dynamic soccer, but then, she couldn't continue developmentally to stay ahead of the other girls in, in what she was doing outwardly, but also how to lead inwardly. And Mm -hmm. that was hard. uh, Just one more reason why um, it's hard to be neurodiverse. Right. Yeah. And yes, so many of these social competency, skill building um, exercises or activities, even within, let's say a soccer community, right? Those pieces, if we can help build upon what someone already has that they're good at, right? If they're good at leading and it happens in the soccer world, great, let's use that as a catalyst to help you in the social world, right? So we can sort of play off of those positives that we see in them and, um, or maybe it's a a class, right? Maybe they're um, highly academic in one area and you you can use that as a way to boost their social engagement, you know, having them mentor other people in that class or um, coach other people and being able to play off of some of those strengths, I think can be really helpful because they, they do want purpose and they need purpose just like any of us. Right. And I think if we can help play off of that in the long run, then that that's where we're going to see some successes from them. And that really is that awareness piece, like understanding your son or daughter, you know, understanding mm-hmm. your daughter, um, what's coming behind, you know, motivating or what's underneath that and then to be able to know okay she's not just going to naturally maybe translate these so I'm gonna have to mentor her like that's where we yeah. can come in and, and make a big difference to be able to mentor them hey you're really great at this let's now now in this area how can we use that and mm-hmm. we figured it out here let's but they're not going to probably get that on their own and we just normally assume that they would but and I think it's just a really important thing to be aware of to help them I think we tend as parents to focus on performative or or actions that show that our child is developing and healthy and that we're doing a good job as parents. And it's kind of about us. Um, one of the things that I'd like you to speak to a little bit is what, what can we, what can we as parents do if we have a daughter or even a son, but female specifically for helping them learn to be okay with who they are mm-hmm. so that there doesn't become an added problem of depression, anxiety, and hopelessness because they are different, which is like the secondary trauma, right? It's hard enough being neurodiverse and having a brain that's different, but then the secondary issues come in of 
not measuring up and then the anxiety and the self-loathing and the doubt. What, what advice do you have for parents? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, your parenting and your ability to parent your child is not measured by how they are doing socially or academically. Um, I think that's an important piece to remember, right? We do the best as parents for our children and we, we want them to get from point A to point B in life. And um, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to make sure that their kids are happy. And I talk to parents a lot about not necessarily using the word happiness, but let's just try to help our kids become more content, right? And okay in life because we're not all always happy. Right. That's not how the world works, unfortunately. <laughs> so being content or being okay or sometimes being sad is okay. And because your kid is not happy does not mean that you are failing as a parent. So I think it's really important to separate ourselves from our kids and what they're going through, making sure that we don't measure our parenting worth, our parenting abilities based on what we're seeing in our kids and just making sure that we support them as best we can and provide them with support. Um, I think really well, right now with COVID, it's, it's difficult um, with, you know, support groups and psychoeducational groups and things like that, um, especially for our kids that are uh, more neurodiverse. I think it's so needed right now and it's very difficult to get that. So hopefully we can get back to having some more, uh, in-person interactions that we can support soon. Um, but with the, when those things are available with the access to some social groups and the access to, um, you know, in-person meetings with people or meetups, uh, you know, helping facilitate those as best you can, but not doing it for your kid. Right? I think a lot of parents step in and continue to schedule play dates for you know, they're 19 or 20 year old instead of teaching them how to make those connections, right? So we can be a teacher, we can be a mentor. You do have to make sure that you have that foundational relationship with your child first, right? You have the relationship with them. You're showing them through your interactions with them how to interact, how to sustain a healthy relationship, um, how to have appropriate boundaries for yourself and respect others' boundaries. And Again, moving into more of a, um, you become more of a, a coach as a parent in a way. If your child is living with you and you want them to reach out, you can model that by setting up you know, uh, coffee dates with your friends, you know, going out and saying, hey, do you want to invite so-and-so with you or you know, prompting them, but not doing it for them. So I think a lot of, a lot of the um, students that we have been working with they haven't had that skill of knowing how to set up their own social world, right? And it is one of those very simplistic um, social pragmatic skills that we don't necessarily, um, we don't expect them to do on their own. So therefore we want to step in and do it. But if we don't teach them, then they will never know. So we want them to learn how to do these things. I watch parents actually teach their kids how to do the social stuff, but they just don't. And then the parent gets mm -hmm. stuck and well, if, if they're not willing to do it, then I, I better do it for them because they really are lonely. And if mm -hmm. they can't do it, maybe it's worth it for me to do it. Even though they know that mm -hmm. it's not right. I, I think they struggle with, do I help them meet their needs or do I let them 
stagnate and isolate and become more depressed. And that's mm-hmm. a hard place. Yeah, to where's go. the middle ground? Right. And yeah. I loved what Josh Doyle said. How far do you push them out of their comfort zone before it becomes crises? Because you want them to get their own needs met. There is a mm-hmm. fear that they won't be independent. But he said, you can push them to the point where you don't lose the relationship with them because as soon as you lose the relationship, um, everything else falls apart. So that's kind of the the cornerstone. Because you can't coach and teach without the relationship foundation. Right. 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 That's really important. And I absolutely agree with that piece. And for so many of these um, students that we're working with, their comfort zone is the size of a pencil eraser right? It's so small. And we don't want to stretch their comfort zone so much that they go into their panic zone. We, re- we want them to expand their comfort zone into their learning zone, as we call it, to make sure that their, their comfort zone is, you know, maybe not the size of a pencil eraser, but maybe, you know, next time around, it's the size of a ping pong ball, <laughs> right? That they're stretching every now and then that they're doing things that are uncomfortable, but it's not something that will push them into that panic mode. Crises. And I think a lot of our students aren't ready to create their own social experiences because they don't value it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they're behind four or five or six years developmentally. A lot of times when we try to teach them something that they're not ready for, they don't learn it because they don't care unless it's important to them. Right. It's so easy for it to go in one ear and out the other. And so sometimes parents have to just accept this is where my child is developmentally, mm-hmm. but I don't have to be wrong, wrong with them. I don't know how else to say it. I don't have to be at war with them mm-hmm. because they're not where I think they should be. Where I expect them to be. Yeah. yeah. Or even if they're not where they need to be because they really are lonely and struggling, but they don't mm-hmm. yet value creating or they're not capable of creating their own social stuff. So sometimes mm-hmm. we just have to keep them safe long enough and not just push them out of the nest. Right. Um, and that's long enough thing. to develop more. Yeah. yeah. You just have to hold on until, I don't know, what, what age do you see where they really start to value the adulting piece or the independence piece? Um, most of us assume that our kids are going to hit 18 and 19, and then they're going to want to fly the coop and drive. Right. For, for the students you work with, what's been kind of the age where they start to see that on their own and start to value that on their own? It's, it's varied. Honestly, I don't have a cut and dry answer for that. We really see um, I would say for females, it's a lot earlier that they want that typically. Um, they want that independence, but they don't quite have the maturity and the uh, emotional development to be able to take the reins. Um, so they want to jump ahead when they're not quite ready for that. And everyone else sees that they're not quite ready for it, but they're, they're thinking, you know, full steam ahead, I can do this. Um, and then sometimes they sort of crash and burn and that's hard to see. Um, and that's when parents step in and try to provide that support. And with um, young men, I would say we, we're usually seeing that around like 22, uh, 22 to 24 oftentimes um, that they're starting to want to take more control of their life. So it is, it, it is about that five-year <laughs> difference, I guess, from when you see um, – you know, clients who are not uh, neurodiverse stretching you know, into that maturity or into um, that adulthood piece earlier on, right? They're usually wanting to do that 17, 18 years old, you know, sometimes a little more delayed at 19, but yeah, you know, with our neurodiverse population, it's definitely a little later. So, And I, I think too, that 
they're going to need a, a lot more parental touches and like walking with them on things like doing it with them, mm-hmm. modeling it with them more of that before they're going to pick it up. Right. Like mm-hmm. so I, just, well, I showed them how to call a friend. They yeah. Them, right? We like, did that. We did that. <laughs> well, we might need to do it 50 times. <laughs> 50 times right. Yeah. Over and over practicing it, doing it together, making it very normal and natural. And, um, but it's a piece that, that another child would easily pick up and maybe even initiate on their own. But, mm-hmm. but, our neurodiverse loved ones, they're going to need a little extra. <laughs> they need a lot more repetition to learn. Repetition. I love, I love Caitlin, that you said that um, the parents need to shift out of the, I'm the parent, you're the child role and start being more of a mentor coach mm-hmm. role where they're more equal. And, and that way it removes some of the power differential or the, the contention. Um, and also it, it removes the fear and the shame from the parent. If they realize, Oh, I'm, I'm not in charge anymore. Mm-hmm. but I am here to help and I love them and I want them to do well. And it's more effective to be a mentor than the parent role anyway. So having the parent come down and meet them on equal terms and say, where are you at? Where do we want you to be? Where do you want to be mm-hmm. is a big term. And I, I see that contention, for example, when parents are stuck on forcing medications that have been there for years and years and the, the 19, 20 year olds, like, I don't want to be on meds anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then they have to start looking and saying, okay, this person's a human being and an adult and they'll always be my child, but I can't treat them like a child. Yeah. Coming down and being equal is really important. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it gives them more, more, um, I think autonomy in how they want to step into adulthood as well. Right. Again, you can do the modeling and you can guide them, but you can't do it for them. Right. right. And it's hard because if you let them go and they go get themselves arrested for stalking or a girl gets herself pregnant because she said, well, he wanted to have sex. So I said, OK, you know, mm-hmm. what's the big deal? What What is there to protect? It's just sex. And I think they see it differently. Autists tend to see things a little more pragmatically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if they're all doing drugs, I'll just do drugs. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that big of a deal. So things like that are kind of scary to parents and it's hard. It's hard to let go knowing that they are more likely to be victimized in some ways. Yeah. And the presentation for anyone on the spectrum is different from everyone else on the spectrum, right? There's that saying of once you've seen one person on the spectrum, you've seen one person on the spectrum. And that's so true, right? Everyone has their different needs. And so we as professionals and as parents have to be flexible in understanding what the needs are. One sensory issue doesn't look the same as another sensory issue. Right. So we have to make sure that we're meeting them where they are and with the support that they need, um, but not necessarily uh, rescuing or enabling or doing things for them. Else that you think is really important that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I, th- I, I just think that the relationships and uh, processing relationships and making relationships comprehensive for them. Right. That oftentimes, again, there's so many layers of relationships that I think making sure that you have an open dialogue with your child so that they can come to you if they're saying, hey, this happened in school or at work, and I'm not sure how to navigate that. Making sure that you're a safe place to come to, I think is really important. The more communication that you can have that's open, the more you can guide them. But again, if you don't have that foundational relationship, they aren't going to feel safe coming to you talking about it. And that's what I'm always talking to parents about too. It's it's that relationship that you have, that connection, and then you're actually seeing them and where they're at and it's dropping all the performative and all the outside expectations and societal stuff. And it's like actually seeing your loved one, where they're at, who they are, 
what they're dealing with and being able to actually, then it comes to you how to mentor, how to connect, maybe what's mm-hmm. it, and, and you really yeah. go to such a deeper level than just like focus on behaviors or <laughs> they're not getting right. good grades or, or what, or they don't have a friend. Like it's actually seeing them. And, and that's and when, the best way to maximize success for them in spite of whatever is hard. So, yeah. Okay. So what, what makes you so passionate about this? What is it that you love the most working with this population or, or being a therapist and helping? Uh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of layers to it. I like, um, I do like that. Not everyone, uh, not everyone on the spectrum presents the same. Um, I like figuring that piece out sort of where, where they're, interests lie and how, again, as I mentioned earlier, to play off of their interests um, and play off of their strengths. I really like figuring that piece out. It's kind of a fun puzzle at times of, uh, you know, how can I connect with them and understand them in a way maybe that other people haven't over the years. Um, And I think a lot of, especially females, um, either diagnosed or undiagnosed on the spectrum, haven't felt that connection and understanding from others and oftentimes professionals specifically if they've been misdiagnosed. And so um, I think I really like that piece. Um, And I really like working with, with uh, males on the spectrum as well, and probably because of, of my connection with that. So um, yeah, I just, I think it's a, a population that is misunderstood oftentimes and my hope is to help people understand them more. And um, again, it's not something that we can do in a blanketed way. It's uh, something that we have to really dissect for each person in their presentation. So that is fun. They're very sophisticated and so rewarding and enjoyable. Yes. I love their, I love their differences. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Kaylin, you have a brilliant mind. You clearly see deeply and the sort of sophistication that you understand it is quite impressive. So thank you for sharing with that, sharing that with us this yeah, we, this week. We really appreciate you coming on. This is, I think, yeah. parents a lot of um, things to look out for and be aware of and, and some better understanding for, for anyone that this population, for our females. We want to take care of them too, not just our boys. So yes, um, how can people, they want to find out more about your program or how, how do they reach you? Or Yeah, so we have a, a website, aspiroadventure.com. And you can reach out to us on there. And um, I'm, of course, open for emails as well. So my email is on the website as well. Okay. So happy to help in any way I can. But thank you for having me on. And I so appreciate all the work that you do and your heart and your passion for, for these kiddos and making sure that they get the support and service that they need. Agreed. Thank you. All right. Well, Thanks for being on. And we just want to hope our listeners, we, we hope you enjoyed this and have an amazing week. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. 